Well, Justice is right. We had an awesome, and I'll take that mic, Justice, sorry. We had an awesome play the last two nights. And, I mean, honestly, every, um, I think every, and we actually had extra seats in here, but every single seat was filled. And at least half of those people were not Liberty people, maybe even like up to two-thirds of the people. So one of the things we do is, and one of the reasons we do these plays is so that the families that are in the play can invite their friends, their neighbors, their family, and we give a gospel presentation at the end. So probably the last two nights combined, 150, 200 people heard the gospel. Some of them are in church, some of them aren't. But we, want to, we just want to take a couple minutes right now and ask the Lord for that gospel message that went forth, that it would bear fruit. So I'm going to have um, David Snyder come up, and then I'll have Justice as well. And we want to go before the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless that message that went forth. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, you are the one who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundations of the earth, and forms the spirits of all people within them. You are the Lord, the God who created the spirits of all people. Nothing is too difficult for you, O Lord. Lord, the gospel was clearly, clearly given each night of the play, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity to share as a church the gifts and talents that this church has that you've bestowed upon it, Lord, to allow other people to come and join us. And Lord, the ability that we can go out and and share with others to come and join us in this celebration in which we glorified you with these talents, Lord. Lord, we, um, we pray that your gospel would go forth and would not be encumbered. And we pray that um, as it went forth that you would illuminate your word in their hearts and anybody that did not know you, Lord, that they would repent and put their trust in you, their only Savior. Lord, we beg you for that because we know that you are the author, the finisher, the perfecter of our faith. So, Lord, we ask you for salvation of those people. We're thank you, thankful, Lord, that we have been pro- provided the opportunity to do, do so within this church to reach people and have an outreach like this. It was wonderful. It was wonderful to see all the many gifts and talents on display, Lord. You are a great God, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Yes, Jesus, um, the word says you came to seek and to save the lost, and uh, we know that you desire for uh, all to come to repentance and to put their trust in you. So we ask uh, that you would let the the word that was spoken fall on good soil, um, that it would take root and that it would bear fruit and that... uh, people would put their trust in you, that they would turn from darkness to light, that they would know you, that they would be saved. Um, God, even if, even if they weren't ready last night, let those words um, be 
reverberating in them today as they think about um, what they heard. God, just keep it in their minds um, that they might call out uh, to you, Lord, and put their trust in you and be saved. We ask this in your name. Amen. Uh, turn to First Thessalonians 5. So everyone has a worldview. It's a set of beliefs on important topics regarding to our lives, the world, our faith, who we are, even as human beings. But within that worldview, there can be different ideologies. And ideally, those ideologies complement one another. But that's not always the case. But every single person will have what I would call like an overarching ideology within their worldview of which all the other things that they put under it will become subsets of that overarching ideology. Now, sometimes people have worldviews and they can actually, the actual worldview can actually, when they start talking about, oh, well, what do you believe about the human soul? Um, That can conflict with what they believe about nature. It can conflict with what they believe about Jesus. So sometimes people can have worldviews and they're not consistent in it. But even within the inconsistencies, usually they have one overarching ideology that they either try to consistently or without realizing it inconsistently kind of jam everything else together. One of the things that we will see is this idea of our ideologies. We want... And I would say what believers need uh, is a biblical ideology. And what we would call it is probably a biblical theology. Now, when you talk about different theologies, there's systematic theology, there's biblical theology, there's all different types of, you can put a word in front of theology. But when we say biblical theology, normally that means like, what is the theme that we see on a particular subject throughout the scriptures? So you could take like the subject of the Trinity. What's the biblical theology of the Trinity? And then you would trace it. What, how does it start in the Old Testament? How does the Lord reveal that to us? And how does that picture become more clear as we get into the New Testament? You could do the same with all sorts of different subjects. You could do it with uh, covenants. You could even do it with our relationship with the Lord. How does that look like? What is it? How does it develop? How does he reveal himself in his son Jesus? And so on and so forth. We want to make sure that when it comes to a biblical worldview or a biblical theology, I'm calling it a biblical ideology today, that it is consistent with the very word itself. And that we're not trying to jam different little things of of what we believe into what the word says. That would be what we would call the fancy word is eisegesis. We're reading something into the text and forcing it in there that doesn't belong. What we want to do is we want to see the text and draw out of it what it truly says to us. One of the things that we've seen, and it's gone completely amok in our society, is political correctness. Now, interestingly enough, uh, just recently, a college was planning on having a course this fall in political correctness. And they canceled the class because they thought it would, wouldn't be politically correct. I'm not even joking. <laughs> I'm not even joking. <clears throat> But here's the thing I want to say to us, because there is great pressure in our society to be politically correct. 
And I'm going to submit to you today that we can't be both politically correct and biblically correct. And we will have to decide at times which one are we going to believe and which one are we going to pursue and which one are we going to stand for. Because if you want to be politically correct, that means you're not going to be biblically correct at times. And if you're going to be biblically correct and follow out what the Word says, that means you're not going to be politically correct at times. So for us as believers, our overarching ideology should be a biblically correct theology. You can't be both. This gets us into our text today in 1 Thessalonians 5. Here's what it says, verse 19. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the play. We thank you for all the helpers that made it possible, uh, the good time that the kids had in hanging out with one another. God, you are pleased in, in things that seem like simple like that to us, but you are pleased to see your children enjoy the things that you've given us. So thank you as parents, thank you as students that participated, and God, thanks for the opportunity of bringing so many people into this church that had never stepped into this church before. They heard your word preached. And Lord, those seeds are there. We pray against the enemy trying to snatch them. We pray against the worries of the world trying to choke them out, God. Let those seeds land on fertile ground and bear much fruit. Bring out the harvest, Lord, and make it plentiful. God, be with us today. We do ask that you would continue to uh, bring us to a biblical theology that is from your word, based on your word, and comes straight out of your word for your glory, we ask. All right, we're continuing on in our study of life together. This is actually part six, if you've been counting. Um, this will be the last one. But it's, we've been talking about life together, and then like the subset has been the duties of members. What are the duties of members to one another and even to the Lord himself in the context of the worship service? So we are at verse 21, the second part of it. The last few weeks we've looked at do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. And now we're going into hold fast what is good. Now there's going to be three ways that I'm going to show you that we can do that today. The first is when we talk about holding fast which is good, we need to embrace that which is good. We need to embrace it. Because I want you to notice something here. He doesn't just say hold what is good. He actually says hold fast. Right? Holding is good. Yes, we hold all sorts of things. We hold opinions. We hold babies. We hold things, right? But he's telling us here, hold fast what is good. What do we do with the truth? We embrace it. We grab onto it. And we don't let go. Think of the picture that, that I get and that I want you to have is Jacob wrestling with God. And what, do you, what does he say to him? What does he say? I will not let you go until you bless me, right? But he, I mean, he's wrestling with them, and he is holding on to God as they are in that wrestling match for the whole night. I mean, he's got them embraced, right? If you've ever wrestled before uh, in any type of, you know, athletic competition sort of, I mean, it's pretty intense. It's pretty intense, but you're, you are embraced, Take it kind of one step further or maybe looking at it in a different light. Think of like the different types of hugs you give people. Like there's like the side hug, right? You know, 
that's like, I don't really know you, you know. <laughs> And then there's like the polite hug, right? You just kind of, it's just like this little, quick little thing. Almost like, I don't know, they, they might be sick. Um, <laughs> then there's the hug, you know, different people. It's like you hug them and they have to, they always got to do like a little tap, you know? <laughs> right? It's true. <clears throat> uh, my favorite, uh, someone called it the London Bridge hug. Like you come in, you know, you just, only the arms can touch the person, you know? The London Bridge hug. And then you got like the bear hug, right? Well, we want to be, when we're talking about the truth and holding fast to that, which is good, I mean, we want to fully embrace it. We don't want the side hug or the polite hug or the tap-tap hug. I mean, we want like the bear hug. A full embracement of that which is good. Second, when we're talking about holding fast which is good, we want to, we want to embrace it, but we also want to keep what is good. We want to keep it at all costs. I, I looked up the word keep just in Psalm 119 because it's talking about God's word. That whole psalm, all however many hundred plus verses, it's talking about keeping God's word, following God's word, seeking the Lord, right? 24 times keep is used just in Psalm 119. We'll look at just a few of them. Look at Psalm 119, verse 8. He says in Psalm 119.8, I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Right? So we're, we're keeping the statutes. God's given them to us. We're embracing them. We're holding them fast. We are keeping them. What's the idea of keeping? It's not just like, you know, you take something and, and you put it in your pocket. You're going to keep it for later. No, you're actually, the idea is, is you're walking it out. You're obeying it. You are keeping it. He's given it to us. And then we listen and we follow and we walk that truth out. We keep it. Look at verse 44 of Psalm 119. He says, I will keep your law continually forever and ever. Again, that's the idea of keeping. A lot of times when we're like, oh, put, put that in a safe place. You know, we want to keep that for later. Put it away. That is not the idea when it comes to holding fast that which is good. We're keeping it means that we're embracing it, we're holding it, and it is something that we are practicing daily. When, when David says here, I keep your law continually, he's like, oh, not just when I feel like it, not when I think it might be a good idea, or I'll put it away for next week, or, oh, Sunday's coming up, this is a good time when I'll practice it. No. Keep means to walk it out and obey it. Look at verse 168. I keep your precepts and testimonies. And then notice what he says, for all my ways are before you. So we're walking before the Lord. And what is the, how do we display our obedience to him? By walking out the precepts and testimonies, by keeping them. Then the third thing that we want to do, we embrace, we keep. And here's the thing. We want to guard that which is good. We want to guard it. We want to defend it. Okay, you keep the good, but you also guard the good. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6.
This is, this is the second to last verse we're looking at. Chapter 6, verse 20. And, and this is Paul's final exhortation to his disciple Timothy. He says, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. And then what does he say? Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. So guard the deposit. Well, what's the deposit? It's the faith that's been handed on to him. It's what Paul's instructed him in, in the ways of the Lord. It's everything that Jesus had said and was encapsulated in the Scriptures. It's everything that God had illuminated to Paul and that he had passed on to people orally and here, transmissionally, by written word. And it's everything we have in the Old Testament. What's he telling them? Guard the deposit. That's how he ends 1 Timothy. And then look how he begins 2 Timothy. Chapter 1 of 2 Timothy. Verse 14. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Now, do you think this was something important that Paul wanted Timothy to do? I would say yes. He wraps up the one letter, and that's the last thought he really wants going through Timothy's mind. And then he begins 2 Timothy with that same idea again. He wants Timothy to guard it. Why? Because we need to guard that which is good, especially the truth itself, specifically the gospel itself. If you don't guard the gospel, what ends up happening to it? It gets eroded. It gets corroded. It gets profaned. It gets watered down. It gets compromised. If you don't guard things, they are open and susceptible to attack. Do you think churches out there, churches will say out there that, that say they believe the gospel, but we know they don't? I mean, do you just think they woke up one day and, and the liberalism just snuck into those churches and they just opened the front door and it walked in? I mean, no. Someone or someones weren't guarding the deposit. They weren't guarding it. So what happened? It was open to attack. And they got attacked. They let the gospel get attacked. It got distorted. So we have to guard it. Don't think someday we'll have to defend it. Because that day is today. And that day has been here for a long time. And don't be like the frog in the kettle, right? He ends up more and more accustomed to his hostile environment. He just warms up a little bit more. Just warms up a little bit more, right? And what is, he doesn't realize until it's too late his own demise. Okay? So if we're not careful... I mean, we can warm up to compromise. We can warm up to liberalism. We can warm up and we've capitulated and we haven't even realized it. We have to guard the deposit. Here's the deposit, right? What's this, what's this not saying? It's not saying, like, hold fast simply the things that we like in the Word. It's not saying hold fast the things that are easy to believe in the Word. It's not saying hold fast the things that are just popular in our culture to hold on to. No, it's really saying hold fast that which is good. And God's word, friends, all of it is good. Now, it might talk about the bad. It might condemn sin. It might talk about unrighteousness. But his word will always be true. 
it will always be good. It will always be righteous. It will always be holy. So do we hold fast some of the things that are good? No. All things that are good, we hold fast to. Listen, some hills are worth dying on. And people have gone before us and died on, literally died on those hills. Some, metaphorically. But if we're not careful, if we keep saying, oh, well, this isn't the hill to die on, and, and this isn't the hill to die on, and this isn't the hill to die on, and this isn't the hill to die on, pretty soon you're going to be in an old crone somewhere that you've never died on any hill. You never stood for anything worth standing for. Why? Because you just kept kicking the can down the road. There's hills worth dying for. And if you're not careful, you're going to end up buried under the hill because you're going to be dead, never having stood for a hill worth dying for. So some hills are worth dying on, not the mole hills, okay? But some hills are worth dying on. This leads us into his second admonition to us of abstaining from every form of evil. Now go back to 1 Thessalonians 5. So he says in verse 22, abstain from every form of evil. Now, if you've been maybe reviewing through 1 Thessalonians, you'll, you'll remember that Paul uses this word earlier, just one chapter earlier, in chapter 4. Look back at chapter 4. This is what he says in verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now think about that for a minute. When he's talking to abstain from sexual immorality, is it just like, oh, about 95% you need to abstain from? No. Abstain from it completely. Abstain 100%. Abstain all the way. It's the same idea here in chapter 5. Abstain from every form of evil. Some things we grab onto and embrace. Other things, we don't touch at all. We abstain from them. We stay far away. It's not even in our vocab. You know, the, the other, last night, actually two nights ago, as we were getting ready for the play, I, I, was, I was hungry, so I, I took a bowl and I, I put some water in it because I got those like cheap little, I don't even know what you call them, but like, you know, chicken noodles in a, in a bowl and you like put hot water in it. You know what I'm talking about? They're not good. Um, <laughs> but I was hungry and I just wanted a little snack because I was going to be here for a few hours. So I warmed up the hot water in the microwave in like a ceramic bowl. And I was like, oh, that, that bowl might be hot because I've been warming up water to get it hot so I can pour it into my little bowl to make my noodles. So what did I do when I opened the microwave? Like I don't just grab that bowl, right? I mean, I just like do that like quick little touch or something, you know? We do that like with cookie sheets sometimes when we find them on the oven. Like, is it hot or not? <clears throat> um, sin and evil is not a bowl to be messed with. Okay, just leave that bowl in the microwave and walk away from it. And we're called to like hold back the tide. Here's the thing. When we're abstaining from evil, we are helping other people to abstain from every form of evil. So we're called to hold back the tide. And you know what? It, it kind of frustrates me, and someday maybe I'll do a sermon series on it, but 
you know, Christianity gets such a bad rap in many ways to how we've treated all sorts of different groups of people through the centuries and even maybe the millennia and all the things that we supposedly didn't do. But the Christians were usually the ones that started most of the social reforms. And the Christians were the ones that usually started and got rid uh, of some of the most evil atrocities in society. Fox's Book of Martyrs, have any of you ever heard of that? It's like a starts literally with the disciples and is the history of the martyrs of the early church. Well, uh, Fox mentions just one person who is responsible for stopping the gladiatorial games in Rome around 400 A.D. How did he stop it? Because he protested what was going on that day in the stadium. What was the result for him? Well, the story goes that they stoned him. But so, so struck, especially was the emperor, that it led to the outline of the gladiatorial games completely. And Fox and other, others uh, back then have, have said it was thanks to this one person, Telemachus. One person. That's the hill. That's the one he, he died on, literally. Even if you fast forward quite a few years, <clears throat> the late 1700s, early 1800s, William Carey, great, great missionary, great missionary. He, he wasn't just there, though, looking to spread the gospel. That's why he was primarily there. But here's the thing, friends. The gospel transforms societies. That's what it does. It transformed our society at one time. We've let it slide back to where it is. We've, in part, are to blame. We are not the salt or not the light that we should have been. If we were there at one point, guess what? The Lord in his grace can bring us back to that point. But William Carey goes to India, and uh, it was basically uh, male dominance times like a thousand. So uh, you had... uh, Women being crushed through polygamy, female infanticide, child marriage, widow burning, euthanasia, forced female illiteracy. And guess what? This was all sanctioned by the Hindu religion. That's Hinduism. And the British government, you know, they kind of put up a little bit of a fight, but sort of accepted some of this. But what did Carey do? William Carey... What he, what he sought to do was pub, publish reports to raise public opinion, to, to inform the public of what was going on and help lead protest against it. 25 years, 25 years, he fought against all these things that were happening against women, including what's called sati, where they burn uh, the ladies when their husband dies on his funeral pyre. I mean, that was a practice. You're talking as early, uh, just a couple hundred years ago. So we're not, we're not talking like, oh, the, the Incas or the Mayas or something like that, you know, with their ziggurats. No, we're talking just like 150, 200 years ago, friends. This was going on in our world. One person, Kerry, for 25 years fought against this, this sati, which led to the banning of it by England, and enforcing it in India in 1829. Now, we, we, we could go on and on 
with achievements like that, that people, not just like they were just like, oh, Christian and name only, or like just like a little, little sentence in their full biography. No, because of what they believed about the Bible, because of their love for Jesus, it drove them to influence society with the gospel and for the gospel. Here's what one theologian said. One of the largest problems we have is that too many people believe they should get to live in hermetically sealed world in which they are shielded from anything bad. Such a world does not exist and will not exist until the once and coming king returns. Right? True? So we need to stop hiding. He goes on, life itself is inherently risky and we can't insulate ourselves from all of its risks. So, friends, we're holding back the tide. We're abstaining, and we're encouraging others to abstain, and we're telling the culture to abstain. We're holding back the tide, not, not by running, but by standing. Look at Ephesians chapter 6. Here's what it says, starting in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And we're going to see this idea of standing all throughout these next few verses. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. And he goes on, stand, there it is again. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Now, friends, if you need a little, uh, as David Snyder likes to call it, a little zep in your step, all right, we've been, we've been you know, having our prayer meetings with the men on Tuesday mornings. I just... He used that little phrase on this past Tuesday. I've been laughing at it every, this whole week. Every time I thought about it, <clears throat> he was talking about just how encouraged he was by our prayer meetings, and it gives him a little zep in his step, right? But if you want a little zep in your step, like, read this, friends. Like, this should, this should charge you up. I mean, this is, this is truth, right? So take that little pill of truth and swallow it. But what are we being told to do here? Stand firm. Over and over. To withstand the tide that's coming, stand and stand firm. That means at times we must speak boldly. We don't quibble with any form of evil. We don't trifle with any form of evil. Friends, at times we can sin by not speaking. At times. 
And some are afraid. Some people are so afraid of sinning with, with their speech. They're like, well, I, I know if I talk, I'll get myself into trouble. That's true for some of you. Uh, I mean, I guess it's true for all of us. But, but some people can be so afraid of sinning with their speech that they decide to never speak in any situation. That's wrong. So we can, we can actually sin by not speaking in certain situations. Here's what Leviticus says in chapter 5. If anyone sins in that he hears a public adjuration to testify, and though he is a witness whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. So there's times where we, we have to speak. We have to speak. Now, our culture will tell us when they think we should speak. We have to follow what the Word says when we should speak. And I'm going to tell you, those two don't line up. They don't line up. But there are times when we have to speak and we can't shirk back just because of the consequences. We have to speak. And I want us to think about this. When we're talking about abstaining from every form of evil, like, I mean, for whose benefit? Yeah, I mean, yeah, for our benefit, absolutely. But we... we, we we think too much of like we're islands unto ourselves. And so we need, to think, we need to think bigger picture. We need to think like, who am I influencing? And yes, spouse, children, family. I mean, that's true. But you got neighbors, you got coworkers, you got a, a, a whole culture. So we're not just abstaining for our own benefit. One, I'd say for our brothers and sisters. Like your abstention helps mine. I'm encouraged to see when people walk in righteousness. I'm encouraged when people hold fast that which is good. Guess what? That encourages me to hold fast that which is good. When I hear about a brother stumbling, do you think that encourages me to walk in righteousness? I mean, seriously. Think about it. That's why sometimes like the filth that, that's on the internet that we call news is really not beneficial. Like I read some article the other day about some pastor doing some heinous thing, and I mean, that was not blessing to my soul at all. It definitely didn't encourage me to walk in righteousness. So when, when we're abstaining, we're not just abstaining for our own benefit, but for our brother and sister in Christ's benefit. Because we're in this together. This is part of life together. My life affects theirs. Their life affects mine. So, so the question isn't, oh, will I have an influence on you? No, the question is, what kind of influence will I have on you? So will you influence people towards the good, or will you influence people towards the evil? Now notice what he says, because many people have commented that he doesn't just say abstain from evil. Right? Look back at your passage, you can see it. He says abstain from every form of evil. Why? Because evil comes in a variety of forms. Evil comes in a variety of forms. I'm, I was, I've been reading through Luke. I just finished it. But Jesus is talking about the kingdom and he's giving his disciples instruction on, on the coming of the kingdom. And then almost like out of nowhere, and I might have even mentioned this a, a few weeks ago, it's still on my mind. He's like, remember Lot's wife. I'm just like, remember Lot's wife. Just like, boom, out of nowhere. What's the point there? Well, part of it is, is very clearly, if you know the story, 
She disobeyed a direct command from God. Right? She disobeyed. Some of us can read that story and we're like, dude, what's the big deal? She just wanted to see like the firework display going on behind her. Right? But she was told not to. So when we talk about abstaining from every form of evil, it's not like, oh, well, what's the little big... That, that's what we do. We're, we're kind of like, probably like maybe what was going through Lot's wife uh, before she turned into the pillar of salt. And we're like, oh, what's the big deal? That, that's how we justify our sin. What's the big deal? What's the big deal Look, turning around and looking? What's the big... Well, the big deal is you've transgressed the law of God. That's a big deal. Okay? doesn't matter if you think it's the smallest of his laws or the largest of his laws. Transgressing the law of God will damn your soul to hell. That's why we need Christ. And if you don't have that, then it is true. You will be damned to hell apart from Christ. That's why we need Christ. That's why we need his sacrificial death. Why? Because apart from that, we are truly lost. And, and what we deserve, and you talk about what we think we deserve, what we really deserve is an eternity separated from God in hell. That's what we deserve. But what do we get because of God's grace? Which, I mean, grace means you didn't earn it. It is unmerited favor. Okay, He gives us a favor that is unmerited. What does unmerited mean? We've done nothing to earn it. Nothing to earn it. It's unmerited favor. That's God pouring out His grace upon us. He didn't have to do that. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how He displays it. So, evil comes in all shapes and sizes. And evil can look good and smell good, but it's still evil. It is still evil. And do you know a form of evil that we don't do a good job abstaining from? Present, I'd say, in every church across America. The good ones and the bad ones. Gossip. That's like the most acceptable sin in any church. And it can do great, great damage. If we want to abstain from evil, we will not gossip. What, I mean, what is it about having some tidbit of information that we just love to pass on? Like we got the inside market on the truth on this particular person or this particular action and we just have, we're just dying to spread it to someone else. All sorts of evil motives work into that. But even though we think we're sometimes doing good, there is no good in it. There is no good in sin, friends. There is no good in gossip. Look at Proverbs 6, just briefly. Verse 16 of Proverbs 6. He says, There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. And then he lists them. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet 
that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. What does gossip do? It's that last verse. Sows discord among brothers. Friends, if you were even thinking about gossiping, it'd be better to take a wrecking ball to the church. Because at least then, it's only physical damage. And it can be repaired in a few months. Gossip does far worse damage than just physical. It does spiritual, emotional, mental damage that can destroy a church or take it years for it to recover from. you got to say no to gossip. you got to say no when people are gossiping to you. Walk away, stop it, plug your ears, don't listen to it. Let me wrap up these, these verses that we've been looking at for a few weeks. What are the dangers of not heeding the first set of commands? Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. What are the dangers if we don't heed those first set of commands? Well, the danger is that we can stop the legitimate work of the spirit. We, we can be the quencher. We can quench the spirit. And if we're not careful, we end up making ourselves the arbiter of truth. Right? We become, that's one of the, the quenching things, right? It's like we become the Holy Spirit ourselves. We'll decide what's true, what's right, and holy. Unless someone approved it, <clears throat> excuse me, unless you approved it, it must not be from God. So we make ourselves the arbiter. Listen, we're, we're not the final arbiter of truth. God is. Uh, the other danger is we're never open to hearing from the Lord unless we read it ourselves in our own Bible. We're not willing to hear from other people, from other brothers and sisters in Christ. We're not willing to hear something that the Lord might be speaking through them. And really, that just is basically saying we don't want people ministering to us because you're shutting down their spiritual gifts. It's just me and my Bible. I'll learn on my own way. I'll grow on my own. That, that's the attitude. But what's the dangers of not heeding the second set of commands? What's the danger there? Well, you're tossed about by every wind and wave of doctrine. You don't test everything. You believe anything and everything as long as someone starts by saying, the Lord told me. And someone tells you they have a word from the Lord and, and you believe it without hesitation. So, the two sets of commands must be coupled together. And that's why they're right next to each other, so that we do that. Listen, you will lean one of these two ways. You will either reject much when you shouldn't be rejecting, or you'll accept much when you shouldn't be accepting. Okay? You've got to right that ship. Hold fast the good, reject the evil. You know... Doing life together, I've said this a few times, but I want to say it again. Doing life together is not easy. You know why I know that? Because I know some of y'all. <laughs> and more appropriately, you all know me, right? <clears throat> it cuts both ways. Uh, but in all seriousness, friends, we're broken. All right? If anyone doesn't think they're broken, probably not the place for you. Because we are broken vessels We're the jars of clay, 
we got, we got cracked, right? Water spilling out all over the place sometimes. But we have a great Redeemer. We have one who came and saved us, who's redeemed us, who's called us for his own. And he, he puts that jar of clay back together. So yes, will it take toil and effort to do life together? Yes. But listen, the end result, when life is done together in the body of the church, it's not just, you're not just here because, because of blood. Oh, I'm related to that person. Or I'm, that's family reunions, right? Usually you've got to go to those. Some, most of you are here, at least in some part, because of your own desire. But listen, when, when we're coming because we have an, our own desire and we're wanting to, and it's not just because we owe something to Aunt Gertrude or whatever in Alabama, the end result is powerful. Why? Because of the witness it is, first to the outside world. When they see people from all sorts of different ages and groups that can come together, and accomplish something, worshiping the triune God, ministering to one another, when people walk into our midst, they should know something is different. And I've heard that time and time again over the years. Not even kidding you. There is something different in this church. It's not the water, okay? But the end result is powerful because of the witness. So people come in. It, it, we were just reading that last week in 1 Corinthians, right? The unbeliever comes in and what? God must be in your midst. In that context, why? Because they're hearing the word preached, right? Not just in unintelligible words being spoken. God is in your midst. But God is also in the midst when they see believers from all sorts of different backgrounds and age groups and ethnicities. They come together and the young and the old and they can actually do life together. They can do it not perfectly, sometimes kind of ugly. Sometimes there's got to be a little meetings and and have a little coming to Jesus meeting and have some repentance and and have some peace. We're broken. But with the Holy Spirit there, with Him living in us, then we can walk in one faith, one Lord, one baptism. We can be one. We have the best head of all, Jesus. Head of the church. So let's take these commands. Well, secondly, let me just say this. So one is the witness, but two, like when, when the body comes together and it is the body and we got the hand and the foot and the leg and every single part that's needed, friends, we can accomplish so much for the kingdom. Not because we're just like, you know, uh, Voltron and we got all the lions together or whatever. No, it's because... The unity of Christ is a powerful statement. When we come together and each one of us has the Spirit and we are walking in that Spirit and we are of one mind, then what can the Lord not do through us? We can accomplish much, not because we are great and gifted, but because we are walking in obedience to the Scriptures. We are unified. We have a unity in community. So let's take these commands and let's put them into practice as we've been exhorted to from Paul by the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we do want to do life together and it is messy at times, but Lord, there are so many beautiful times as well. And it pleases your heart when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. And you accomplish much for the kingdom when we walk together with you.
So we ask, Father, that that's what you would do. We wouldn't just be hearers of the words, we'd be doers of the words. We'd take these words and put them into practice. And Spirit, here you are mentioned specifically, do not quench the Spirit, and we don't want to quench you. And forgive us when we have. Fill us, Spirit, to be able to obey these commands and walk them out. Father, have your way with each one of us. Do your work in us and use us for your kingdom purposes.